the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This week's The Interview is brought to you by AndrewandTodd.com. AndrewandTodd.com are the world's best lenders for real estate. They are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. You can call them at 888-888-1172, 888-888-1172. And please do, no matter what your lending needs are, andrewandtodd.com. And now welcome to this new edition of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That's the theme song from Breaking Bad, a show that kept occurring to me as I considered what Joby Warwick described on the Cape Ray, which I will unfold for you in his brand new book, Red Line, which is chemistry in a place you don't expect it at a quality level that has seemed simply impossible. Joby, welcome back. Two-time Pulitzer winner, author of Triple Agent and Black Flags, both books that must be read. I've got red line here. You've been reading my Twitter feed. I got 14 pages of notes here. I hope you're ready and relaxed. I got a lot of questions for you. Got my coffee here. Great to be with you. It's always you. It is. It is a terrific book. Uh, it is the unraveling of Syria and America's race to destroy the most dangerous arsenal in the world. And Joby, when I do a long form interview for the radio show and the podcast, I mentioned the red line by Joby Warwick a few hundred times so people will know what we're talking about. But I also want people to go get the book. I can't, you could talk for hours and you can't cover this book. Am I right about that? You you just, it's so mind boggling. You know, the crazy part too was was trying to put it together in, in 300 pages or whatever it is. It's just so much richness of detail. And, and the, so the fun of reporting this book was just every, interview was a revelation and how the hell did they do this and what happened there and it just was it was just astonishing to me and to have to whittle down you know all the stories to fit into a single volume was was a challenge there are books within the book that's what i told people on twitter there are many books within the book we'll talk briefly about each of them but i cannot possibly this does not substitute for reading the red line america you got to go get it i want to begin on page 250 right sort of Mm -hmm. two-thirds through the book Quote, in the thinking of some of President Obama's advisors, including uh, McGurn, who's in charge of it all, any accounting of the West's epic policy collapse in Syria would begin with those few simple words uttered amid a burst of optimism in the uprising in Syria's early months, quote, Assad must go. President Obama, as well as the leaders of Britain, France and Germany and the EU, had each used those words with slight variations. In August of 2011, five months after the uprising in Syria began, on page 37, Joby, earlier, you detailed President Obama's statement and the naive, really the naivete he had about Assad. Was there any ever grounds for any of the West leaders? I don't want to single out the president here, President Obama. Everybody got it wrong. Was there ever any reason for anyone to think Assad the son would be different from the man who invented the Hama rules? You know, there shouldn't have been. I mean, if, if you've been watching Syria over the last you know, five or six years before Arab Spring. This is a guy who didn't expect to be president of, of Syria. His 
sort of the heir appointee was was his brother who was killed in a car accident. And suddenly you got this ophthalmologist who becomes the accidental president of Syria. And this is a brief window where he kind of flirts with being a reformer and people come over and see him and talk about how what a, what a good guy he seems to be. And then he just quickly gets it sort of sucked into the this sort of the security state and becomes just as big a tyrant as his, his father was, just as brutal a guy. And that's clear really before Arab Spring happened. So there's no surprise that this guy is is awful. I think the surprise was that even people that knew Assad were, were amazed at how brutal uh, he chose to be and how he would not um, you know, tolerate any reform after Arab Spring started. His, his idea was just to crush it and destroy the country if he had to, 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 to stamp out this uprising. At the end of the book, you reflect that Syria now reflects nothing so much as post-World War II Germany and Japan. But there is no Marshall Plan coming, is there, Joby? There's not. Nobody's going to rebuild this country, at least not in, in any kind of Marshall Plan way. I mean, the, the Russians and the Iranians would like to have us come in and help them. But the West is, is looking at this and saying, no, thanks. As long as Assad is there, we're not helping you. And so what you're left with is a is a ruined country. And we know what that's about. We saw what happened in, in Afghanistan in the 1980s. If it's a lawless vacuum, if there is no state control, really bad things can happen. And all the ingredients are there. ISIS is there. There's still hundreds, maybe tens of thousands, by some estimates, of fighters who are just lurking and waiting for an opportunity to come back. So this is an awful place, and, and I think we haven't seen the worst of it yet. Jumping ahead, I'll come back to that, but that triggers in my mind uh, General Vodal's warning. They had the technology. They had the capacity. Where did they go? And I know you're probably still on on this case. I hope the tyrant Ginsburg, my my affectionate name for Steve Ginsburg, assigns you to China because I want you to work on China. But I know you must still be on the ISIS hunt. And General Vodal says we don't really know where they went. Mm, that's true, because, you know, we, we saw the end of the caliphate, but there was this kind of squirting effect of all these bad guys, the ones that got away, some of them are, are pretty scary. And there are a couple ones that I focus on in particular because they have scientific capabilities. They're guys who are full-fledged chemists, who know how to make chemical weapons, who know how to make all kinds of explosives. And some of those are still on the run. We've got them on our most wanted uh, you know, just, Justice Department pages. We have no idea where they are. And that's really the kind of the scary part of, about this next ISIS chapter. Is they've, they've got the people. They certainly have money because they've, they've raided bank accounts and gold vaults, and they have more money than they can spend. Um, and so it's just a matter of having opportunities. And that's, that's going to come from them eventually. One of my uh, notes that I took away, this is not in the outline, is that as Saddam's people resurfaced in ISIS, so ISIS's people will resurface in the next iteration of Islamist uh, extremism. Let's go back to the red line, the early part. It's beyond the ken of your book. You didn't reflect on it, but I think you must know what I'm talking about. How closely is Assad's behavior, which you detail, uh, tied to what happened to Gaddafi? Because when Gaddafi fell, memorably executed, murdered uh, brutally on October 23rd, 2011, Assad was watching. Hosni Mubarak had been overthrown February 11th of the year uh, of uh, the Arab Spring as well. Assad was watching. Uh, was it naive for the West not to think that Assad wouldn't draw conclusions from what happened to the left of him and what happened to the right of him? Mm. Well, he certainly was watching. And I think it probably is, in hindsight, was naive for us to think that he was, was not going to do exactly what he did, which was to to tenaciously hang on to power. Because you're right, those are the two big examples that happened uh, before the uprising really began in Syria. You've got um, Mubarak sort of being abandoned by the world, and everybody says, well, you're done, get out of here. And so he leaves, the end of his rule. The same thing had happened in Tunisia before that. And then with, with Libya, it's this brutal ending to a guy who could not have deserved it more. But 
But just from Assad's point of view, it's sort of a lesson. Here's what happens if you start to make concessions. It doesn't stop. You know, the, the protests don't stop. They're just going to come after you, and they're going to take you down. And so they were determined this was not going to happen in Syria, they being the, the, the police state. And they were configured and structurally, culturally, to just to be as tough as they could possibly be. At this great moment, uh, I was speaking to a, a guy who was a diplomat in Syria for years. He was trying to, 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 to just get some explanation from um, some regime people about why Syria behaves so brutally. And his answer was, we're made for this. We're built for this. This is what we do well. So if the, if the idea is to repress and to be brutal about it, we are the superstars, and you're going to see some brutality that you can't imagine, and exactly what we got over the last 10 years. You know, uh, before this all began, Robert Kaplan wrote a great book, Eastward to Tartary, in which he took a bus trip through Syria. And I got the sense of the uber police state from Kaplan's always excellent reporting, but I had no idea that they would do what they ended up doing. And now let's go to that. You begin your book, Red Line by going back to 1988 and to one of the coups of the Reagan administration, the development of a source inside of the Syrian chemical weapons program known as The Chemist. Tell us about The Chemist. Tell me how you found out about The Chemist. I'm, but Mike Pompeo is a pretty good friend of mine. I'm going to ask him who's talking over at his old agency. Uh, tell us about The Chemist. You know, it's an amazing story. It's almost amazing that it, it kept quiet for so long, because you're right. This was an absolutely incredible penetration of, of Syria's top secret program. So Syria is a, is a country that's looking at around the neighborhood that sees Israel with nuclear weapons and it wants to try to respond to that in some way. So it invests heavily in, in kind of a poor man's weapon of mass destruction, which is chemical weapons. And they get pretty good at it. And they develop a, a pretty big complex with dozens of sites and they're making terrible stuff like sarin, the, the nerve agents that we hear about that are so deadly. And we wanted to, to understand what they were doing and what the threat was. We managed to recruit one of their top guys, one of the one of the senior scientists who was inside the lair, inside Sirius program, making this this terrible sarin, and he becomes our, our best informer. And we ran him for more than a decade. And he not only gave us great information, but he actually sent us samples that we could take outside the country and analyze. It, it's, it's a remarkable story. I, I thought back to that. Uh, spy games movie with Redford and uh, Brad Pitt, uh, because it's real espionage. I mean, it's, it's dead drops. And it gave me a rule that I want to pass on to every turncoat who's working for the United States. When the secret police come, don't own up to anything. They might be there for the traffic ticket, right? <laughs> Which is exactly what happens in this case. It's an amazing story. You can't script this. It's better than Hollywood. But the guy had been such a great spy for so long, he just got a little bit sloppy, as some do. He was getting a lot of money. He's getting paid for his information. And he, and he starts you know, taking outside income from other sources. So he gets hauled into the office, so to speak, on the, you know, for over a bribery issue, a corruption problem. And he gets he panics. He thinks that the, the 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 Syrians have figured the whole thing out. So he confesses all of it. He confesses the the CIA you know role and and the the Syrians apparently did not even know about it. So he essentially, you know, tripped up himself. And uh, we'll just say that things didn't end for him very well after that. In fact, I want I want Syrian exiles to hear this. Never go home. At the end of your book, there is a tragic story of someone who escaped Syria. One of your sources whom the Syrian secret police lured back with a promise of amnesty, and he's vanished back into the prisons from which he had escaped. Don't go home. Is that not a takeaway for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this poor guy, and he, he shows up several times in the book as someone who's 
he was just essentially swept up and you know and he was trying to deliver some some baby formula to a besieged area of Syria. He gets caught, he gets thrown into these awful dungeons that the Syrians kept and tortured in unbelievable ways. He manages to get out and escapes, and the Syrians kind of lull him into thinking that they're going to bring him back in and he's going to be. Uh, you know, he's going to work with prisoners, and he's going to be a reforming voice inside Syria. It was all crap, of course. He gets to the airport, gets snatched up, disappears right inside the gulag again. And so, yeah, yeah. The, the moral of the story is don't trust the Syrians when they say, come back and we'll give you a nice little villa. Now, in your book, Red Line, there are heroes, there are tragedies, and there are villains. One of the heroes is a guy named Andrew Weber. Now, I've never heard of Andrew Weber. I have read about him now. And we don't agree on a lot of stuff. It's like when John Kerry comes on the show, I always say, we're, you know, we're just not going to agree, but let's be polite. And I actually admire this guy. Uh, what a career. There aren't many people that buy MiG-29s by the dozens in the course of their career or take all the nukes out of Kazakhstan. He's in charge of this. Tell us about Andrew Weber and how you connected up with him, because he, he's a superstar. He's not in the, in the current administration. I hope he comes back. You know, I, I've known Andrew for a long time, and and just you know, my my take on this, and I think you probably agree with it, is that um, there are all kinds of people within the, the national security establishment, and and the good ones understand this is not about party and politics, but the job is about protecting the country. And Republican, Democrat, the, the good ones understand that, and I do think that Andrew fits into that category. But here's a guy who, throughout his career, was the guy who helped get bad things out of out of bad places. So after the Soviet Union collapsed, he was the one kind of making deals with, with shady characters who happened to know where uranium stockpiles were that were left over from, from the Soviet days and would work out a plan to get them out, usually smuggle them out, usually by paying a lot of money. But we got some really bad stuff out. We got MiG airplanes that were abandoned in Moldova uh, that the Iranians were looking to get, and we got them out. And in this case, here's a guy who's who understands the weapons threat, Here's a country in the Middle East with a weapon of mass destruction that's that's really portable, that's really dangerous. Any country that gets their hands on it or any terrorist group that does, they've got themselves something pretty powerful. And so he becomes very excited as early as late 2011 thinking, we got to figure a way to get this out. We cannot let this remain in Syria. Somehow it's got to go. So he was part of the spark that kind of led to this massive operation that ultimately happened to get the chemicals out. And Redline details how the entire arsenal was built and how part of it was dismantled. And we'll come to that. But just a moment on Weber. Uh, one of my closest friends in the world is a guy named Dan Poneman, and he served both Republicans and Democrats, so he's a Democrat. He he chased loose nukes for a while, and he taught me—he was DepSec of Energy during Obama years, and he was on the National Security Council. He taught me that uranium has signatures. What you taught me in this book is that chemical weapons have signatures— so that sarin has a signature. We know we can go backwards. And I, I think the world needs to know, WMDs, we will find out who did whatever happens anywhere in the world because of the scientists. And I, I, I knew that about nukes, but until I read Red Line, I didn't know that about chemical weapons. And I didn't know that either. And it's, it's fascinating. And in this sort of the details get very technical, but you can find if sarin is used anywhere in the world, even after it's used, you can look at that chemical composition and you can tell where that stuff came from with pretty good reliability. And the Syrians made it easy because they had a couple of added ingredients that they had invented themselves to kind of make it more stable, to make it more potent. And no other country that's made sarin has ever used that. So whenever you know Syria tries to claim that all oh, that you know attack that happened in this village here, that wasn't us, we didn't use that sarin, we can tell pretty clearly it came from their arsenal. Whoever, whoever dropped that bomb, we know who made the stuff. 
And that's important going forward because if we have a chemical attack anywhere in the world, we can figure out pretty quickly who's behind it, and there's uh, there's potential payback there. And the we here is an organization I had never heard of until I read Red Line in The Hague. And, I, you know, it's in my notes somewhere, OCWD. What, what's it called? The op, the op, what's it called? Yeah, OPCW, and it's the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. And you would not have heard of it. It's uh, it's obscure. It's 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 a big bureaucracy. We've got you know, hundreds of people there. Their job is to police the, the enforcement of, of the Chemical Weapons Treaty. And until 2011, 2012, that wasn't too tough of a job. It basically means traveling around the world and making sure the Russians and the Americans were getting rid of their stockpiles like they, they said they would. And that was it. And suddenly here they are in the middle of one of the biggest WMD crises uh, of our time, and they ended up having this outsized role. And some of the people, as you see in the book, become real heroes and are incredibly Huge. brave. Huge. We're going to come back to that. Let me go back to the beginning, page 13. The estimation of every leading intelligence agency in the world, that's a quote, was that Syrian regime would collapse. Some could be, the, the, you know, that, that's basically what we said about WMD in Iraq in 2003. Every intelligence agency in the world says X. At that point, now I'm beginning to think when everyone agrees, we'd better appoint uh, a team, a red team to go and take a look at that assumption because everyone was wrong again. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, this was, it, I, I know this because I was on the ground reporting at the time and I would go to all the countries in the neighborhood and, and we, know, we know who they are, the Israelis, the Jordanians, the Turks. They all saw Assad's days as numbered. In fact, as we saw, you know, we see in the book, the, the Obama folks were, were almost worried that he was going to fall so quickly they wouldn't have enough time to really get behind the, the rebels and make a big show of that. But the, the reality is, we're, you know, that, that Syria had something going for it that no other country had to this degree. They had the Russians and they had the Iranians, two countries that saw the survival of Assad as being in their own direct national security interest. And so that was the, sort of the tipper. You know, if it just been Assad and his army, eventually they would run out of people and money, and they, they kind of did. But then the Iranians back them up, and Hezbollah backs them up, and the Russians come in militarily. And so this was the guarantor that no matter what happened, no matter who threw up what at Syria, unless we got involved militarily, Syria was going to survive. But nobody saw that coming in 2012. An echo in Red Line by Joby Warwick is of Dr. Kissinger's book, Diplomacy. When uh, a great power is involved to a greater extent than any other great power, that great power will win. If they will raise the ante, which is the definition of a great power, is the ability to raise the stakes. When only one is involved, they will win. In that case, it's Russia with a near great power, Iran, behind them. So on August 20th, 2012, President Obama told reporters that the use of chemical weapons would be a red line. Um, terrible mistake in retrospect. When you say something like that, you've got to live with it. It's probably, even Ben Rhodes admits you later, it's probably the defining moment of his presidency, at least the, uh, the worst moment of his presidency. Uh, did he mean it when he said it? You know, it, it's, it's, a good, it's a good story because it's very complicated. And I think he, he did mean it in the sense that uh, the Americans, the security establishment, the Israelis as well, were really worried uh, in the summer of 2012 that, that Syria was about to give his, his weapons away. And they weren't so much thinking about him using them on his on Syrian people. That hadn't really entered anybody's imaginations. But they were really worried that Hezbollah was going to end up with these weapons. And the, and the Israelis saw signs that these things were starting to move around. And so you see Hillary Clinton and, and Obama both kind of running around over a couple of months saying again and again, don't do that. You know, can't get rid of these weapons, can't give them away, don't move them. And, you know, sending 
guys like Bill Burns out to, to meet uh, counterparts in the Middle East and send the message through the Iranians, through the Russians, to, to, to Syria. So in this, to the extent that they really were concerned, it was a serious warning. But what wasn't clear ever, I think, was what the Americans would do about it. It was, in a sense, kind of a hollow warning because it, it didn't, for us, mean a military intervention. Um, it just wasn't clear what it meant. So it was vague, and, and for that reason, it was not helpful, shall we say. And it also was something that, that led the opposition on. It kind of convinced the, the rebels that, the Amer that America was going to come to their aid. And, and then those, those uh, expectations were shattered and, in tragic ways. Um, it really led a lot of embittered um, former opposition figures to join terrorist groups like ISIS and al-Nusra. Now, Israeli uh, sources were feeding President Obama the warnings because they were afraid, of course, of Hezbollah gaining access to sarin. And uh, you, you may have to talk a little bit about sarin here because it, it's so creepy. It's so awful. And VX is, is so bad as well. But an, an incident occurs, and in, in pronunci pronunciation is always an issue with me, Jovi, so help me out. Surakab, Syria, uh, April 29th, 2013. President Obama has won re-election. What happens in Sarakeb, and and why does it set off basically the narrative at the heart of your book? Yeah, so I, I decided to focus on one attack because we all know about the ones that happened later, and they're they're so horrific, and we saw the images on TV. But that's not how it started. In the beginning, Syria was doing these little pinprick attacks, where it'd be just a, a canister of sarin dropped on a village, which is exactly what happened in Sarakeb, which you pronounce very well, by the way. So oh, good, that's a luck there. That's just luck. <laughs> And, and you know the uh, so in this one case, the, a couple of, of essentially tear gas canisters filled with sarin drop on this besieged town. One of them falls in the backyard of, of just a random family in, in the middle of, of this town, and the family comes out to see what the commotion is, and they get sick. And the mom, the mother of the house, ends up dying. Uh, but it becomes important because she's close to the Turkish border, and her family's able to get her out of Syria to Turkey, and she actually dies in Turkey. That means there's a body outside the country. And this is a time when, when the world is trying to figure out if these reports of chemical weapons use are really true. The Americans are trying to figure out if they're true, what does that mean? Because the president has just talked about this red line thing. What if we have proof that Syria is using chemical weapons? What do we do about it? So it becomes this moment that you know all these um, worries consolidate almost in the in the in the figure of a single woman who dies randomly of a sarin attack in, in 2013. And it becomes the impetus for a, a UN investigation for, for teams of inspectors going into the country. It becomes really the start of what would become one of the biggest covert programs that the Americans have had in years, which was a, a secret operation to deliver supplies and weapons and training to to Syrian rebels. All coming out of these early attacks that really people in the West never even heard about. But it was Joby, kind of as a reporter, I, I, I'm curious. First of all, has this book been optioned? Because it is to me Chernobyl. You know how Chernobyl turned into this giant miniseries because no one knew about it. Has this book been optioned yet? Uh, well, we won't talk about that quite yet. But it's uh, there's some discussions, and I'm, I'm excited about it because I do I do feel like it's it's a great story. And oh, I'd it's love many it. it's many great stories. But what you did, I don't know how you got to Ibrahim Al Khatib or how you found. This is the most plaintive, heartbreaking moment in the book. Ibrahim Al-Khatib's wife, Miriam, is the corpse in Turkey that provides the key detail. And he says, uh, what in the world is Obama waiting for to draw his red line? Draw it here. It has been crossed 20 times over. He cannot say a word. It's anguish. I mean, the poor people of Syria had been led to believe that the American people would not allow 
these weapons to be used, and they're so horrific. You can hide in your cellar from bombs. You can escape from the country, but to watch your children asphyxiate and your wife die, this is horrible stuff. Yeah, it was one of the most emotionally moving moments to me to, to discover that that moment. And, you know, obviously you, you can't be on the ground when things like that happen. But the remarkable thing about gathering any, any kind of, you know, doing any kind of reporting these days is somebody is there with a cell phone camera at, at almost any any point because we, we film everything these days. And so some people came to investigate this attack and they were just Syrian activists and they, they went to the house where this woman had died and they got this poor bereaved husband and he was just beside himself with grief but also with anger just as you said because you know i don't think they necessarily expected that the u.s you know the cavalry was going to come in at the start of the war but you know by god the, the president has said this was a red line here's the red line being crossed what are you going to do about it america and if you're not going to do something about it why should we do why should we believe you ever and so all that bitterness and disappointment are just gushing out of this guy and you hear it again and again from the syrians and from people who are very sympathetic to our point of view and, and really love America. But for them, the sort of the failure of, of the U.S. to enforce the red line was was just a moment that could never be forgiven. And and I heard that again and again and again. And it's just uh, just part of the tragedy story. Again, Joby, there are so many characters in the book and they fall into three categories, hero, tragedies and villains. Uh, one who is both a hero and a tragedy is only a brief paragraph. You mention him only, and you don't know his name. I just want to remember him. The bomb that fell in the in the Khatib's garden that killed Miriam, about which um, uh, Ibrahim cried, uh, is taken by an activist and driven to the Turkish border in the hopes of telling the world, and he disappears. The Syrians get yeah. him. We don't know his yeah. name. He's just gone. Yeah. And, and that's yeah, that was relayed to me by other activists. They split up the material. They so the activists gathered evidence, and some went one way, some went another. And one of these guys was stopped by a random bunch of Syrian thugs and taken out of his car and shot. And that's a fairly common story, unfortunately, just the brutality of uh, of the regime against people who are trying to deliver evidence to the to the, to the outside world. Now, uh, Ben Rhodes is in this book, and it, it's no secret we don't get along very well, and uh, and that's fine. Uh, he, he did his best. Everyone does their best. I just think they screwed it up. But in June of 2013, um, he tells you, you never know which will of the millions of words a president will use will end up uh, cementing a certain impression. Nonsense. Red line is red line. But he acknowledges but downplays publicly in June of 2013 that, you know, we're going to increase the scope and scale of assistance in Operation Timber Sycamore, about which I knew nothing until I read Red Line. It is a replay, an attempted replay, of Reagan's successful aid to the Mujahideen in the 80s. The Obama administration attempts to arm the Syrian rebels that we like. Tell us about it. It's not a good story, but tell us about mm -hmm. it. Yeah, and it really grows out of this Red Line stuff. It's it's uh, the, the U.S. attempt to try to show that we're taking these offenses seriously. We're not going to get involved militarily in Syria, but we're going to help out militarily with the rebels, which we resisted doing for a long time. But it, it ends up being this huge program, you know, billions of dollars poured into arming opposition groups. And it was almost a complete failure. We had training camps set up in Turkey. You have thousands of rebels coming across the border for training, getting money, getting weapons. And they just, you know, once they went back into Syria, they were gone to us. There's a lot of them just joined, you know, other 
organizations that paid more money. Um, the weapons were stolen that we'd spent so much time, you know, you know, buying and, and giving away. And we ended up having almost nothing to show for it. And Obama, by the end of his presidency, was was pretty sick of the whole thing. And then then Trump comes in and just pulls the plug on it because it it was uh, it was not a useful program, shall we say? And it's and it's part of the legacy is it helped kind of throw some gasoline on what was already a raging fire, just in terms of making things more violent and more destructive than they even were. Worse than a waste. Later <laughs> in the book, you describe one of the things that. Timber Sycamore produced were tow missiles that somehow end up in ISIS hands and attack Syrian tanks. Now, it turns out that ISIS doesn't triumph there. But the fact that they had our weapons is a warning about blowback. And that's the famous term that applies to the Reagan effort, too. Of course, blowback always comes. Time for a pause now in this edition of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. I want to remind you that our sponsor is AndrewandTodd.com. There with Sierra Pacific. They lend you money to refinance your house or buy a home or help your son or daughter become investors in real estate by becoming a non-occupying co-borrower. They help senior citizens with reverse mortgage. They help veterans with no money down mortgages. They help you refinance. So if you need to get money out of your house or you need a whole new house, go to andrewandtodd.com or call them at 888 Now back to this edition of Hugh Hewitt and the interview. Let me go back to the heroes, Weber and Tim Blades, who's my favorite character in the book. Absolutely my favorite go-to guy. I want to meet Tim Blades. And uh, this is actually something you'll never hear me say uh, on the air very often, is that it's good that our government is so large and inefficient because hidden within it are places like the Edgewood Chemical Biological Center in Northern Maryland, about which I had never heard. You know, I'm not dumb. I read this stuff. Were you amazed by Tim Blades and this gang of merry prankster engineers and WMD experts who are tucked away in Maryland somewhere? I had no idea these guys existed, <laughs> and they are absolute heroes. They're they're some of the, the and you know as, as unassuming, just kind of workaday guys you'd have a beer with, and they ended up having this the part of the story, which which they were the ones that actually destroyed the chemical weapons at sea when nobody else in the world would do it, and they did it against the predictions of everybody who kind of knew what they were talking about. And they said, this was always going to work and it's going to be a disaster. And they pulled it off out of pure pluck. And, and Blades, in a way, symbolizes it all. He's kind of cantankerous, um, you know, no-nonsense guy who, who just, just said, well, give me the job and I'll get it done. I'll show you that we can do it. And he did. Now, but people remember yeah. that the chemist had told the Americans about the rough extent he, he was turned and discovered. So all we knew is that they had about 1,300 tons of really bad stuff. And I'll leave it to you to describe, jo uh, Joby. I'm going to give you the floor here for three or four minutes to describe what Blades and Major General Santee and Weber and the whole gang, the Cape Ray. I, I just want you to give a brief. You got to read the book. You got to read Redline to get this. And your eyes will roll back in your head and you'll say, that's amazing. It's absolutely amazing what this gang did but it begins with our knowledge that there are 1,300 tons of killer stuff that if ISIS or Hezbollah or anybody gets it, will end up in New York killing tens of thousands or in Europe or in, Constant in Istanbul or in Israel. It's just bad. And it's up to these people to deliver it and destroy it because of something Kerry got done with Lavrov, which was an agreement after the red line was broken and we did not deliver, 
take up the story from there and how Weber got Blades and the gang to get aboard the Cape uh, Cape Ray. Yeah, and so to, to do it in three minutes is 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 a challenge, but you, you you've got it right. So this is, you know, we have this problem. There's this material that we're finally going to get out of the country, and that's was always the challenge. How are we going to get it out? Well, turns out there's a there's a deal now. Syria has agreed to, to give up its declared arsenal. They didn't get rid of all of it, but most of it came out. And so the question arises, where does it go and what do you do with it? In the U.S., we built a huge complex for destroying chemical weapons that we had built, and it cost billions of dollars. It's taken 20 years, and we still haven't gotten rid of it all. But this guy, Tim Blades, and his team said, hey, we can invent something that's portable, that could be put in a truck and transferred anywhere in the world, and it'll destroy these these precursors, so they're these chemical weapons, so they're not uh, ever usable again. And so he built his machine. It cost three million dollars, which is just amazing. It was so cheap; it's almost laughable by Pentagon standards. They built it on spec and put it in a warehouse, thinking, "Well, maybe someday we'll use it. Maybe we won't." And then when this deal breaks out, of like, "Holy cow, we got this machine! Where do we put it?" And so the Americans go around the world. You see Weber and others going to places like Albania and knocking on the door with hat in hand saying, can we set up our machines somewhere on a, on a military base or on an airfield somewhere? Everybody said no. So it was left for Tim Blades himself to take his machines and put it on the only platform available in the world, which was a boat. They got this old ship out of the ready reserve fleet, turned it into a chemical weapons destruction factory and strapped these machines onto the deck and then headed off to the Mediterranean to pick up these hundreds of tons of really dangerous weapons, and then over 40 days, just spin circles around the Mediterranean, destroying them one barrel at a time. And things almost fell apart. They had one problem after another, a little problem of instability of the boat itself, um, a problem with environmental activists who decided to stop them and set a flotilla of ships out to try to find them. And all these, you know, all this adversity and somehow they managed to get it done and didn't kill anyone. It didn't contaminate the Mediterranean. And it was just all a testament to bravery, skill, and some pretty good guys, as you say, who happened to work for the U.S. government in the bowels of the bureaucracy of the Pentagon. Now, there are a number of threads in this tapestry. People need to read or see the whole tapestry by buying Redline and reading it. But I'm going to pick out three or four threads just to emphasize. Number one, and I want everyone who thinks their idea is great to hang on to this. When the ship was brought up at Pentagon meetings as the alternative, you say on page 143, the ship idea was regularly mocked whenever it came up at meetings. Then the experts at the end tried to stop it when it turned out that Albania folded on us. And there's a book in, within the book about the diplomacy here. Our, our so-called allies really didn't come through. The North Atlantic test drive. Look, I've been on, on cruise liners in the Mediterranean that have the stabilizers, and they still... I mean, you can go from one side of the ship to the other. You can have a bad night. One of the ships I was on lost every bottle of wine they had on the ship because they had a bad night. I can't believe they tried this, Joby. I really yeah. cannot believe they got away with this and that it did not get killed. But hats off to Blades and the captain and the crew. And not, I'm going to come to another person, but for a comment on that, it should never have got, if they let, experts decide this. It would never have been done. They, you have to let engineers engineer. Yeah, exactly right. Because these guys knew what they were doing. They hadn't tried it at sea before, but they had a pretty good invention and they knew it. But then you get you know, experts come in and there was you know a team of, of 
senior Navy people who came in and looked at the plan and looked at the boat, and they came out and said, that's not going to work. You guys are, are screwed. This thing is going to capsize. You're, you're all going to die. The ship's going to get contaminated. You won't even be able to get it into a port to get it cleaned up. This is going to be a giant disaster. And this was a, this happens like two weeks before the, the ship's mission was, was supposed to begin, and it was essentially a death sentence. And the solution for for uh, for Blades and for Weber and for for you know uh, Santee and these others was to essentially ignore this because at this point they had no other alternative. There's no other plan for getting rid of the weapons. They were coming out of Syria. Somebody had to take them, and so they said, "Well, well let's just do it." And uh, you know the the Santee, who's also one of my heroes, he's this major general who was uh, trying to bring all the pieces together. And he said, you know, this is just as fun. This is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. This is kind of the Pentagon's expression for it. And we can't let that paralyze us. And so it, it, in the end, it just becomes this can-do spirit that prevails against all these naysayers and all these, you know, skeptics, some of them raising good points and concerns. But sometimes you just have to do the best you can and take as many precautions as you can, but just, just try. And, 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 and General Santee, Major General Santee, sends, after it's done, this part of the book is done, after they dispose of their 600 tons, he sends an email. Five months to create a first-ever deployable hydrolysis system. 66 days to outfit the vessel. 42 days to destroy 600 metric tons of Syria's most dangerous chemical weapons at sea. The number we will never know, the number of men, women, and children in Syria who were saved from death by chemical weapons. Now, the rest of the book details how not wholly are they saved, and certainly not at all from death. But General Santee is right. This is an amazing story. I want people to read it, to read about the Americans involved in this story. Now let's talk about a different hero. And I mean Sigrid Cog. Am I saying her name right? Absolutely right. All right, Sigrid Cog. She is freaking amazing. Have you seen the uh, miniseries 000, Joby? I have not yet. I've heard it's great. It's great. In it, uh, Andrea Riseborough plays Emma Linwood. She's going to play uh, Sigrid Cog. And by the way, the ship in 000, you know where it sails to? Geo no. Toro. Uh, On the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so when I'm reading Red Line and I'm watching 000 at night, I said, wait a minute. And I go back and I get my book and I said, holy smokes, the, the handoff <laughs> takes place in this most disreputable port in the world. Uh, but in the meanwhile, go, go back to Latakia, though. She's just, the Danish special forces are amazing, but they've got to get the Syrian chemical weapons to the port. Then they got to get them on a Danish boat. It's impossible that they pulled this off. Yeah, absolutely. You have this moment, just a, the first few weeks of this disarmament mission go pretty well. The Syrians decide they have to cooperate, and they're letting the inspectors from Sigrid Cog's people come into the country and start to look around. But you know, within about a month, they start to shut things down, and they start to block the, the inspectors. They start to make excuses about why they can't help anymore. And you into the middle of this, you have this mother of four, this Dutch diplomat named Sigrid Cog, had never seen a chemical weapon in her life, uh, had no military experience, but was kind of an, an Arabist, was married to to uh, to, you know, to, uh, to an Arab, lived in Jerusalem for a good number of years, and she knew the players, she knew the Assad people, and she comes in tough as nails and just goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with them to, to force them to do their job. And and you see them, you, they're driving around the country, they're, sometimes your artillery shells are flying over their, their trucks as they're riding around, you know, mortar shells landing in the lobby or the, or the front courtyard of their hotel regularly, you know, all kinds of dangers and obstacles. And she is just 
fearless about making sure that these weapons get out on the on the deadlines that was promised. And yeah, she's another of these people that rose to the moment. Um, you know, you know, just out of a, a fairly obscure, you know, background, but ends up being the right person at the right time, and ends up kind of making the Russians and even the Iranians join to help her to to get the weapons out. And she's really a remarkable person. And I would do I, hope I, somebody somebody I, good I, plays the role. Oh, gee. I, I want to go back now to Iran and Soleimani. Uh, this week, tapes were released of uh, Javad Zarif saying that when the Americans killed Soleimani, it was a strategic blow to uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Your book details in part why that is. He is a battlefield genius, and he is the most ruthless killer uh, that, that I, I've come across out of any of these armies. Soldiers, you write, under his direction were later blamed for some of the wars in Syria's worst atrocities, including including the siege of Medaya, which I've never heard of before until I read Red Line. But he had a vision, and he had contempt for the Syrian army. He had Hezbollah regulars that he had trained, and he had the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Quds Force, which is expeditionary. They were not going to let Assad lose. Nevertheless, even the United States was surprised by his determination and the Obama administration was completely surprised that Russia got in. Would you describe w what Russia did and what Iran did to prop up the Assad regime? Yeah, and it's it's amazing in both cases. I remember in 2012, even 2013, thinking that, you know, seeing why everybody thought that Assad was toast, because he was losing whole units, were defecting to the other side. He was running out of money. He was running out of, of people, out of, out of soldiers. And Iran comes in and backs him up, and particularly Soleimani, this, this brilliant commander who comes in and says, look, you Syrians are worthless. Let me show you how to fight a war. Let me show you how to really be brutal. Let me bring in all these trained fighters that we have from Hezbollah next door in Lebanon and brought in whole brigades of them to prop up the, the Syrians, you know, help them besiege um, cities and, and use starvation tactics and, and stop you know, all food and supplies from getting into these towns until they crumbled. And this was the sort of the military genius behind Assad's survival. And when things look really dire for, for Assad, he goes to Moscow, fl flies to Russia himself, and says to Putin, we need your help as well. In 2015, you see the Russians agreeing and sending their air force for the first time, you know, the Syrian air force coming to the Middle East from Russia to prop up Assad. And that was a turning point. After that, after Russia commits itself to, to being involved militarily, that's the end of the conflict. You know, there's no way the rebels are ever going to win. And from then, it was just a slow march to, to victory for Assad. Now, Joby, I'm, uh, I'm going to say something I've never said. I almost am glad that Putin did this, because the prospect of catastrophic success, which you describe, catastrophic success is another new term for me that I get out of red line, is that Assad falls the Islamists roll in, they overwhelm the Free Syrian Army that we have spent a billion, two billion on, and they take control of what was obviously not the entire stockpile given over. We destroyed half of it. And, he, and I got to tell you, from the beginning of Red Line, when you detailed 1,300 metric tons, we destroyed 600 metric tons. So I'm asking the question that you answer at the end of the book. Where'd the other 700 metric tons go? And the answer is not all them left. And they came very, what is catastrophic success? Why am I, explain to the audience what almost happened? Because it's a nightmare. And I think, I, I'm sort of glad Putin stopped it. Mm. So when we were arming the rebels, so finally there was kind of a critical mass where there was enough weapons, there were enough trained fighters 
joining the Islamists who are now engaged as well, that Assad started to get in trouble around 2015. And this is the moment when Soleimani goes to Russia and says, you need to get involved militarily because bad things are happening. If the rebels had won then, there's no question about who would have come out on top, because it was no longer the secular op op opposition to the extent that ever could have succeeded, because it was a, a weak and very divided force. Now it was the Nusras, the Al-Qaeda people. Now it was Islamic State, the best fighters in Syria. And they were the ones that were poised to take over. And if they didn't succeed initially, as you said, they would have overwhelmed the, the secular opposition and they would have been in control of the country. And you could imagine a success, you know, overthrowing Assad, but the, the, the catastrophe is the part that the new rulers of the country are the worst people we could imagine running a country in the Middle East, the, the extremists. And that could have happened, and that was the that was the catastrophic success scenario that was giving people willies at the White House in, in 2015. And these weapons are so hard to describe. In one of the amusing segments of Red Line, when they get to uh, Site 7, Dr. Evil's Lair, as you call it, or they call it, they try and destroy the, the rocket. They try and destroy the, the warheads, and they run a tractor over it, doesn't do anything. They bring in a T-72, and they run it, it doesn't do a thing, and they send for plasma torches because they're going to have to dis I mean, they would have gotten into the hands of al-Nusra. Al-Nusra camps on the Golan Heights. Israel would have been at risk. Everyone would have been at risk if the Islamists had gotten a hold of this. It's a complicated moral question. I have 10 minutes left, I have, or 14 minutes left. I got to cover two things with you. Um, first of all, I can see you sitting here with your editor saying, I got to put the controller in here. I got to talk about Australia. I'm going to have to take a—I'm going to go down this side road here which isn't really about Assad or these chemical weapons, but it's about ice. I got to tell this. I'm glad you did. That's creepy. I did not know the Australians had two near. I knew they had a near miss. I didn't know they had two near misses, and I didn't know what we were dealing with. Why did you include? I mean, am I right? You just said to your editor, I got to include this story. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I guess you could structure the book so it ends with the, the removal of the weapons, which was a great, great ending and a success in its own right, despite how it was an imperfect success. But in the background, you have this whole other chemical weapons problem, which is the fact that ISIS decides to get into the game as well. And they didn't get a chance to get the weapons they wanted from Assad, so they decided we'll make our own or we'll innovate with our own kinds of, of technology, kind of simple stuff we can use to carry out chemical weapons attacks around the world. And they nearly pull off a couple of times. They had their own chemical weapons factories inside Mosul, where they were trying to make sulfur mustard, which is horrible stuff. It's not sarin, but it's, it's nasty. Um, they made some. It wasn't very good, but they were getting better. And at the same time, they were trying to commission um, WMD attacks on other countries. And there's one moment in Australia where, um, you know, the book reveals the Israelis tipped off the Australians to the, to the fact there was a serious plot underway on their shores with a couple of guys who were trying to build a, a chemical weapons dispersal advice. And they, and they made it. They got the materials together. They got the machine. It was just a matter of, of timing. Uh, the, the, the Australian police arrested them, you know, probably days or, or at most weeks before they were able to, to, to launch this attack. Do we know who the hero is, the Australian baggage clerk or check-in counter clerk who stops the meat grind? Do we know who that person is? Because there are heroes in this book. They don't have names. I don't know if they want to be named, but thank God she was picky about the weight limit for carry-on baggage or, or hundreds of people would have died. Absolutely. You know, the, 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 to show you how sick these, these terrorists were, they recruited their own brother, who they didn't like. He turned out he was, a, he was homosexual. He's kind of a family black sheep. And so they planted the bomb on him, put it in his hand luggage. 
and he walks into the airport to check in, but his bag was too heavy for a carry-on bag. And it was some, you know, random, you know, front, you know, front counter clerk who looked at this bag and said, that's too heavy. That's not going aboard. We're going to have to screen it. And that made the terrorists nervous. They said, oh, never mind. We'll, we'll take this back. And they, and they aborted that part of the plot. They said, well, we, we're going to have to rethink this because they were afraid of getting caught as they were bringing the plane on. So there was, there was just that, a woman at a counter doing her job and flagging the suspicious-looking package that carried a bomb um, that was going to kill you know, these guys' brother and, and several hundred people on board an Emirates uh, Airlines plane over the, over the Pacific. It's a great reminder to everyone who is in a line everywhere and upset with the line that these people are doing their job for a reason. All right, I, I, I got to close up here, and I want to ask you, uh, people can read about the Trump airstrikes. People can read about the Trump withdrawal from Syria. People can get into that. I want to talk to you about Joby Warwick for a second. You now have this amazing career. And uh, honestly, it's pretty tough to have two Pulitzers and, uh, and then produce a book like this. What are you going to do? Because, I mean, I, I, I really don't know how you top these three books. I had a member of Congress relay to his staffer, who happens to be my son, that your triple agent, he was on the base at that time. Uh, is the most accurate account of that awful day, the worst day in CIA history. Black Flags won the Pulitzer. Now I think you're going to win the Pulitzer again. I don't want to jinx anything. What are you going to do for an encore? Uh, this is tough. I feel like I've been on a roller coaster for about three years with this. You know, it's just, it's, it's you know, when you I have to tell you, Hugh, when, you, when you're working on a story like this, there's nobody feeding you information, and it was just the same with the triple agent. Half the stuff is classified. You, you, it's really, really hard information to get, and so it's exhausting. You kind of to kind of pound on doors and it's just to work sources as best you can, just to get the little bits of information that you can pull together in a story and be accurate. Because, you know, I, you know, you live and die on your credibility, and and my great fear is that I'm going to be misled by a source or I'm going to misunderstand, and so you just have to be so careful with the facts. Uh, just, you know, I guess after this is all done, it, it's just, you just need to decompress for a while. And that's my immediate plan. I haven't had a, a vacation in a while and just want to kind of unwind a bit. But as you're unwinding, that's when those, those new ideas come into your head and what the next adventure is going to be, because there's always something back there. It just maybe hasn't come to your conscious, uh, consciousness. Let me plant a seat. I hope, I really do hope Steve Ginsburg, and you thank in your acknowledgments, Marty uh, Barron, Steve Ginsburg, the great team at the Post. And I work on the other side for Fred Hyde. He's great too. I hope they send you to China or they put you to work on China because our, our great foe for the last two decades have been the Islamists. Now it is the, the Chinese Communist Party and we need someone with your skill set. That's where I want to end, your skill set. Where do you come out of? And for young journalists in love with Twitter clicks and Facebook follows, my job is to be never in doubt and frequently wrong. Your job is to be occasionally brilliant and never wrong. And so we have different jobs, but we need more of you and less of me. And I'm very serious about it. We, we got to get journalists away from Twitter and back doing what you do. Where do you come from and what's your advice to young scribblers and would-be Joby Warwick's? Well, you know, I, that is a good point, because I, I'm afraid that this whole Twitter habit that we're in now, and, and it really infects my profession in, in an insidious way, as far as I'm concerned, it's all about promoting your own brand. And for me, it, it's sort of the whole point, you know, my success as a journalist, to the extent I've had it, is taking myself out of the picture. It's not about me. It's not about promoting something that I do. It's trying to understand what happened. And when you when you approach a source with that kind of sort of genuine interest in what they did, 
and I'm not going to glamorize myself. I want to know what you did and how you felt about it. People respond to that. And they also respond to your earnest attempt to be as honest and as fair as you possibly can. And over time, that pays off. It pays off with your access and with your reputation. People agree that you know maybe this is somebody you can talk to because he tries to get it right. And But again, it, it ultimately, it's not about me. And it's for, for me, it's not about politics. It's about trying to understand a complicated situation and, and to explain it with clarity and hopefully make it compelling and interesting to people. Well, you've succeeded. It's not the first draft of history. It's actual history. And you also mentioned Jane Harmon, a, a, a acquaintance of mine, and Rob Wilack, who's actually a friend and a friend of 40 years. There aren't enough people and enough papers for reasons having to do with finances and business to support people like you. But do people understand that's an investment they've got to make? Do you think that recognition is growing in the world of media conglomerates that they've got to make these kind of investments to produce the kind of reporting in books that we need to understand the world that we face? Because you can't read Red Line and sleep easy. There are too many terrible people. There are too many villains with too many bad things and, and evil hearts. Are there enough people willing to subsidize and promote and support this? That's been a big problem, Hugh, and I think it's getting worse because you can't, obviously you can't re report stuff like this in a, in a few days or even a few weeks. You really need concentrated effort. And we know in our in our news cycle these days, and with these shrinking newsrooms, people are just, you know, writing up the press releases, you know, doing press conferences and writing the easy stuff. And and what you need is people who are asking hard questions and introducing an audience to places and people they've never heard of and probably never would have heard of. That's the value added of good journalism. And and I do think it's a it's a crisis in the country right now because the business model is in trouble. Until we can figure out a way to sustain good journalism. And also kind of police it, I think, to the extent that um, we do have to separate what's what's garbage and what's innuendo and rumor and what's real fact and substantiated because there's just so much noise out there right now. It's just hard to separate the what's real from what's just smoke. You're right. All I can do You're is right. what Lamar Alexander used to quote Alex Haley is always saying, find the good and praise it. That's Red Line. I say we're past, we're at our mark. We're two minutes over our mark. Red Line is a book you got to read, America. Go and get it on Amazon today. Joby, can't wait for the next one. Don't take too long off. I want the next one. Thank you, my friend. Really enjoyed this, Hugh. Good to be with you, buddy. Thank you. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember, to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.